We speak with a civil rights attorney. Did Trump incite or was he just being Trump? Did the former president burn and shred his way out of the White House? Experts say maybe. And an avalanche in India. Are the Himalayas safe from the effects of climate change? With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, February 12th. 2021. Lawyers for Donald Trump defended him against impeachment Friday by accusing Democrats of waging a campaign of hatred against the former president and manipulating his words in the lead up to the deadly siege of the United States Capitol. Their presentation included a blizzard of their own selectively edited fiery comments from Democrats. The Trump legal team characterized the impeachment case as a politically motivated witch hunt. They sought to reduce the case to Trump's use of a single word, fight, in a speech preceding the January 6th riot. They played dozens of clips showing Democrats, some of them senators now serving as jurors, using the same word to energize supporters in speeches railing against Trump. Trump defense lawyer Bruce Castor. The only question that needs to be answered is, was Donald Trump responsible for inciting the violence that came to this building on January 6th? By any measure, President Trump is the most pro-police, anti-mob rule president this country has ever seen. His real supporters know this. He made it clear throughout his presidency. He made it clear during the violence this past summer. He made it clear on January 6th. Politics has created and interposed an element that should not be here. It has interposed the element of hatred. Political hatred has no place in the American justice system and most certainly no place in the Congress of the United States. We have a video. I am your president of law and order and an ally of all peaceful protesters. I just don't even know why there aren't uprisings all over the country. Maybe there will be. My administration will always stand against violence, mayhem, and disorder. There needs to be unrest in the streets for as long as there's unrest in our lives. Together, we will ensure that America is a nation of law and order. We're in high school. I'd take you behind the gym and beat the hell out of them. But I think you need to go back and, and punch him in the face. I feel like punching him. We just want law and order. Everybody wants that. Is there truly anyone in this chamber who disagrees with the words as spoken by President Trump on that video? Surely not. Surely not. Castor went on to argue Trump never told his followers at the rally they should actually go inside the Capitol building. I don't know if we're under oath here, but when I walked into this room, I sure as heck felt I was under oath and that I was speaking not only to senators of the United States, but before the entire world and with God watching. And a House manager got up here and told you that the president of the United States on January the 6th, 2021, told the crowd that they had to go and fight. And the implication that they wanted you to draw was that he was sending them down to Capitol Hill to go and breach the building and trash the very sacred halls of Congress. But we now know that is not at all anything near what the president said. What the president said was, if you can't get your members of Congress to do as you would like them to do, 
you primary them. That's the American way. The first way that the House managers presented and wanted you to conclude, that's the criminal way. But what the president said was the American way. The Trump defense team left out that what Trump was doing in telling his supporters to fight like hell was to undermine a national election after every state had verified its results, after the Electoral College had affirmed them, and after nearly every election lawsuit filed by Trump and his allies had been rejected in court. Democrats say Trump's campaign to overturn the election he lost was rooted in a big lie that laid the groundwork for the mob that assembled outside the Capitol and stormed inside. Five people died, including a police officer. Virgin Islands delegate Stacy Plaskett. He had that group assembled, inflamed, and all the public reports ready to attack. He deliberately encouraged them to engage in violence on January 6th. President Trump had spent months calling his supporters to a march on a specific day, at a specific time, for a specific purpose. What else were they going to do to stop the certification of the election on that day but to stop you? But to stop you physically? There was no other way, particularly after his vice president said that he would refuse to do what the president asked. The point is this, that by the time you call the Calvary, Cavalry, not Calvary, but Cavalry of his thousands of supporters on January 6th, an event he had invited them to, he had every reason to know that they were armed, violent, and ready to actually fight. That is why this is different, and that is why he must be convicted and acquitted. And disqualified. The case is speeding towards a near certain acquittal, perhaps as soon as Saturday, with Trump's lawyers making an abbreviated presentation that used less than three of their allotted 16 hours. With Trump's arguments for acquittal hanging on his lawyer's assertion, the president was engaged in protected freedom of speech. WBAI turned to noted free speech lawyer Ron Kuby. He says Trump's lawyers had a case, but they didn't make it. The nice thing about being a First Amendment lawyer um, is I do have a specific tiny niche expertise in First Amendment as it applies to criminal defense of people charged with inciting to riot. It's a small practice, but, but I've maintained it over the past four decades or so. Some general principles. The First Amendment provides no protection to anyone, to any president, who's engaged in impeachable acts. That is to say, there are many, many things a president can do, which done by a private citizen would be perfectly legal and protected by the First Amendment, but if done by the President of the United States would be impeachable. Let's say, for example, the President of the United States declared publicly, I think that this is a rotten capitalist system, I think it needs to be destroyed as quickly as possible, and he closed every presidential address by throwing a few flags on the grill to burn. All of that's constitutionally protected. There's no doubt whatsoever that a president who said and did such things would be impeached and in all likelihood convicted. The First Amendment, as it applies to impeachment proceedings, just is not a universe 
in which the defense should be moving. The president's words almost instantly become reality. In terms of sort of what the defense here is doing, there is a defense that can be made that they really haven't tried very hard to make. As we know, the line between lawful advocacy, even encouragement on one hand, and incitement on the other, isn't a clear line. And it very much depends on a number of factors, and it's not as though the defense has nothing to work with here. They could have started by citing relevant Supreme Court cases or portions of them that lay out just how direct and imminent the threat has to be. They could point out that all Trump said was march to the Capitol. He certainly never told anybody to march into the Capitol. He never specifically requested that the people engage in actions A, B, and C. And there was some amount of time between the time Trump spoke and the time the mob entered into the Capitol building. If I were trying this case, defending him as a criminal defendant, I think I would have not great chance of winning, but a substantial chance. His defense attorneys really aren't making much of that kind of argument. There's not a textured and nuanced legal argument that they're making, although there is that kind of legal argument that can be made. Like everything else, Trump, it's all... I didn't do anything wrong, and you're all persecuting me. When you already know the jury is going to acquit, you can pretty much put on any kind of defense that you want. I seldom uh, am in that position, and by seldom I mean I never have been in that position. What does this tell you about which way the country is going, and is it a surprise to you? I'm glad this proceeding took place, even though the we pretty much know the outcome in advance, because it does create a necessary historical record for the future. And this reminds me of when I was speaking to one of the war crimes prosecutors in The Hague a number of years ago and asking him why he was doing it when it was fairly clear that people that he was pursuing were not going to be seriously punished. And he said it's important to create the record. It's important to create a historical record that these things happened. This was the evidence. It can't be refuted. The same reason the Holocaust trials, the Nuremberg trials were important to establish an evidence evidentiary base in history for the future. So to that extent, it was worthwhile. Um, You know, and I also learned something, despite the fact I was raised as a Jew, um, I didn't know. I learned that from watching David Schoen drink water while while putting his hand over his head instead of just wearing a yarmulke like everybody else. So, you know, it was uh, was good. Uh, I enjoyed the riot porn a lot. It was well done and had the desired effect. First Amendment lawyer, Ron Kuby. By the way, Trump lawyer Bruce Castor, he's 59 years old. He's familiar with politics, being elected as the ambitious cowboy booted and pinstripe suit prosecutor for one of the uh, state of uh, Pennsylvania's uh, most uh, wealthiest and heavily populated counties, suburban Philadelphia. There he was accustomed to securing murder convictions and standing in front of the lights and cameras from Philadelphia TV stations, making him well known in the state's most politically dominant region. Castor went on to become a county commissioner and then ran against a Republican and lost in the primary to become attorney general. 
He tried to reemerge as a politician, but he decided to uh, became involved again in the emerging allegations that comedian Bill Cosby had sexually assaulted dozens of women and that he Castor had declined to prosecute one such case a decade earlier. Uh, his decision not to prosecute became his Democratic opponent's central line of attack in the race for attorney general. He defended himself, saying there was not enough evidence to successfully prosecute, but he lost and later went on to testify for Cosby's defense. In doing so, he also questioned the credibility of the victim, Andrea Constand, who sued him for defamation. They settled the case in 2019. Before Cosby was convicted in a second trial, Castor burst back on the scene as Pennsylvania's first ever solicitor general. In it, he stepped in to make legal decisions in the administration for the state's embattled and politically abandoned Attorney General Kathleen Kane, a Democrat, as she fought charges of leaking protective investigative information to smear a rival and lying to a grand jury about it. She was soon convicted, leaving Castor as the state's acting Attorney General, the position he had so long ago sought, but only for two weeks until an appointee of the governor's office took over. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And while an impeachment is a sort of trial, it's not like a criminal trial in many ways. How evidence is presented, who judges and sits on the jury, it's as much political as legal. Is the president guilty of the vaguely termed high crimes and misdemeanors is really at issue. But if Trump and his associates ever face real justice, the evidence may be lacking. Already some are asking, was there a record shredding or burning party in the White House before Trump left on January 20th? A lawsuit brought by the Washington, D.C.-based National Security Archive was meant to find out. But since Trump left, the issue is moot, and a new president promised to keep the remaining documents safe. Among the information wanted, Trump White House policy that only was only saved via screenshots, the instant messages of government business, such as Jared Kushner's negotiations with Saudi Prince bin Salman. It turns out that Jared Kushner did not. He failed to capture the complete record that the law required of each one of those screenshot documents. An attorney for the archive and other information rights group is Ann Weissman. Then President Trump showed that he had very little regard for his record-keeping obligations. There were reports of how he would rip up his notes, and there were actually people who would follow behind him, charged with taping them back together again. He refused to allow note-takers present when he had really significant bilateral meetings with foreign heads of state like uh, Vladimir Putin. All signs were that this was someone who did not want to create a documentary record of what he was doing and why. We'd filed earlier lawsuits over some of those practices and already were very concerned. And given the president's conduct in the last month in office, there was just an increasing sense of urgency and a sense that a lot of records might be destroyed because Trump faced potential criminal and other exposure. Some of the documentary evidence might be among his presidential records. All of those taken as a whole really led us to have serious concerns that there would be a massive destruction of his records before he left office. And for all we know, it happened, but we did everything we could to prevent that. Now, you mentioned about Jared Kushner's negotiations with Saudi Prince bin Salman. What was going on with the instant messages? Jared Kushner, and it, through his lawyer, and then I think he also admitted that he used WhatsApp, which is an electronic instant messaging application. And why a lot of people use WhatsApp is because it doesn't preserve records. He was conducting a lot of official White House business 
through WhatsApp and was now preserving those records because the most his lawyer said he was doing was creating screenshots. And that was really at the heart of at least a lot of our complaint. Screenshots, they might capture what the actual message is, but they don't capture any of the metadata, which can be very important. Who else was in on the message and when was it sent? And they don't capture attachments. We just felt like given the significant role he had in conducting Middle East diplomacy for the Trump White House, that those records were especially important. There was a pattern of conduct by the president and by some of his closest advisors. What does this lawsuit achieve? Who brought it and why? It was brought by a number of different good government groups and historians, the National Security Archives, the Schaefer, the Society of Historians of American Foreign Relations, the American Historical Association, and Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. They do a lot of scholarly research, and for many of them, you know, the core of their research is based on a president's papers and making sure that the records of the Trump presidency were as complete as possible. There were letters sent to the archives and to the White House seeking assurances that things were proceeding as they should be, that records were being preserved, and the assurances weren't provided. Really, we had no choice but to sue, and the immediate focus was on making sure that whatever was then in existence would be preserved until our lawsuit could be resolved. So is that where things stand right now? No. Now we have a new president. So the court reached out and wanted us to tell the judge, Katanja Brown-Jackson, asked us to tell her what impact that had. And we just did a filing yesterday where we basically said our claims are now moved. Files you were trying to get from Trump, what happened to them? As a result of our lawsuit, the White House required every official to to import into their official email accounts or records accounts full copies of their WhatsApp messages in their sort of native format, which meant that the metadata, the attachments, et cetera, would also be preserved. And it's our understanding that those records are now under the custody and control of the National Archives, which is, of course, they're the ones, they're the recipients of a president's records once a president leaves office. And they will eventually be available to the public, but not yet. And that's Ann Weissman. She's an attorney for Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. And that was a story about the um, alleged possible shredding party. Remember that from the Nixon days? The Shredding Party at the White House. We'll be following that story as it develops. Indian rescue workers struggle this week to dig away tons of rock and mud to reach survivors in a choked Himalayan tunnel after a devastating flash flood. Nearly 200 people are still missing after a wall of water and debris hurtled down a valley in the northern state of Uttarakhand, destroying bridges and roads, hitting two hydroelectric power plants and killing 32. The disaster has been blamed on rapidly melting glaciers in the Himalayan region, exacerbated by global warming. Indian researchers have said that while it initially appeared the collapse of a glacial lake caused a sudden flood. It was likely a landslide and avalanche crashing into the glacier, building activity for dams and dredging riverbeds for sand and the clearing of trees for new roads. 
may also have played a role in destabilizing the area. Dan Sugar is Associate Professor of Geophysics at the University of Calgary in Canada. He says the tragic collapse of the glacier was most likely the result of a landslide, possibly made worse by human activity. Whether we can attribute this event to climate change is a really hard one to answer, especially so soon after the event. There have been some teams that have made it to the site now um, by, by helicopter and some kind of walking partway in anyway. But, you know, no detailed assessments on the ground, to, to my knowledge anyway, have been made yet. And so we don't exactly know what the, you know, we know that the landslide which was likely composed of both rock and glacier ice, was the cause of the floods, but we don't yet know what was the cause of the landslide. Sometimes big landslides have a specific trigger, and that could be like really heavy rainfall or an earthquake, something like that. And sometimes they don't have a trigger, but they have these sort of antecedent causes. And so the that might be something like um, increased erosion at the base of a slope, which which makes it too steep, or... Um, lots of water available, not not necessarily from an intense storm, but just it's rainy all uh, winter on the West Coast, for example. And so that can sometimes destabilize slopes. In the case of this event, we don't yet know what caused it. We have some some possibilities that may be related to climate change, but certainly too early to say with any or to say conclusively at this point. What have you been to this region? I've not. No, I've been to Nepal, but I've not been to uh, to this part of India. Would well, like from, to? Yeah, from your knowledge, what do we know so far about what happened? The way that I've been describing it is a rock and ice avalanche, not an avalanche like, uh, you know, you might see it at Vale or something while skiing, but rather gigantic landslides where part of the mountainside breaks off and falls down. So solid bedrock or, or mostly solid bedrock, not the surface soil that's sliding. But in this case, it took with it part of what we call a hanging glacier. So this is a very steep, relatively thin glacier up on a slope rather than kind of the typical what we call valley glaciers, which are sort of lower gradient or, or um, flatter glaciers that we tend to see down in the lower valley. So this very steep glacier and rock beneath it collapsed, careening a couple thousand meters down or, you know, 6,000 feet or so down to the valley floor below. And then what we think happened is much of the ice in that material melted instantaneously because of all the heat that's generated during these large landslides. And then that was probably much of the water in the in the floods. And we preliminary estimates are looking at about 25 million cubic meters of rock and ice combined, which is a fairly large mass to come down. So is this, you know, just what they would call an act of God in the insurance business? Or is this something that was human man-made? Or does that really matter in this case? I guess it matters if you're in the insurance business. There have been some conspiracy theories bandied about blaming it on CIA expeditions and, all, and the Chinese and all sorts of things that I think are pretty outlandish. In my opinion, this is a totally natural phenomenon, perhaps, you know, big, a big grain of salt there, perhaps linked to climate change. So, you know, perhaps human exacerbated, but a completely natural phenomenon. Most of the world's population lives pretty close to the coast. And so for people that don't live anywhere near the coast, these are real climate impacts that can't be ignored. Sorry, you probably heard my dog playing with her ball. No, that's fine. It's fine, 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 fine. You, you get to live in Calgary. <laughs> it's mostly cold yeah. there this time of year. 
It was um, is minus forty the last couple of days, and that's <laughs> with, the, with the wind. But I have a husky, and she was even a little scared to go outside. Oh my gosh! Well, stay warm. Of course, there's nowhere to run and hide from climate change. You think you're running from the coast? Well, you know, I live in New York City, where the where the whole half the city is in danger of being flooded. Climate change is more than just temperatures rising and sea levels rising. You know, there are a lot of other impacts. Some of which are going to surprise us. Some of which we have a reasonably good handle on. But most of us are going to suffer to some degree, and so it's up to us to decide yesterday and the next best time to do it is now decide how we respond to that dan sugar is associate professor of geophysics at the university of calgary white house deputy secretary tj ducklow has been suspended for a week without pay after he reportedly issued a sexist and profane threat to a journalist seeking to cover his relationship with another reporter White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said Friday that Ducklow's conduct was completely unacceptable. Psaki said while she had not spoken about the incident with President Joe Biden, Ducklow and aides at the highest level of the White House's communication team had apologized for the incident. No one wants anyone to feel uncomfortable to be put in an uncomfortable position, Psaki said. She continued that in a statement earlier Friday, Ducklow had been suspended without pay. With the approval of the White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain, she said Ducklow is the first to acknowledge this is not the standard behavior set out by Biden and that Ducklow has sent the reporter in question a personal note professing his profound regret. And that's some of the news for Friday, February 12th, 2021. The news is produced by Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. For the WBAI News, I'm Paul Durienzo. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening.